0: Will you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7? We will be looking at, frankly, a very obscure and difficult to interpret passage of Scripture in verses 25 through 40. I normally don't like to bite off that big of a chunk, but because it all goes together, and because I hope not to bore you two Sundays in a row... I will try to do it all at one time. The real emphasis here is on the advantages of being single, but there's a whole lot more here that I hope to be able to glean and give to you. Now remember, in chapter 7, Paul is devoting a lot of time here to answering specific questions that the saints at Corinth were asking regarding celibacy and marriage and singleness and divorce and remarriage and so forth. And given the unique uh, sociological and cultural issues of that day, which we have covered in the past at great length, these matters needed divine attention. And frankly, they still do. But here in the final 15 verses where he addresses the advantages of singleness. His answers really coalesce around some very important and practical realities and priorities. And frankly, these realities, these priorities rise above all of his inspired suggestions and authoritative guidelines for the individuals in the church who might be single who might be considering getting married and so forth. And I, I believe that these, these considerations, these priorities, are ones that sometimes we fail to recognize and fail to apply to our life. In fact, as, as the Spirit of God worked in my heart, especially this last week as I meditated upon this passage and endeavored to understand it, I, I found myself being convicted in various areas, and I'm sure you will be as well. Now, in order to help you see what's going on here, I've divided the, the, the section, the, this passage into three different sections, three different categories. And what we're going to see is Paul is is going to give the advantages of being single that really require three frames of reference that are applicable to all Christians Um, in, in terms of how we make decisions, how we view life, how we live life. We must, first of all, have the proper perspective of life in light of eternity. Secondly, we must have the practical priorities of life in light of eternity. And finally, we must have a preeminent preoccupation of life in light of eternity. And frankly, dear friends, unless these... Convictions rule our heart, our flesh will rule our life. And like Paul, it's my great desire to shepherd you, and sometimes that requires telling you some things you may not like to hear. But mind you, I had to live with this all week and heard a lot of things I didn't like to hear. So now it's your turn. In verse 35, he says, This I say for your own benefit. Not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. And I can only pray that you all will receive these truths in humility and not in some kind of proud resistance. So first of all, as he addresses singles and by extension all of us, we must have the proper perspective of life in light of eternity. Now, let's look at the passage in verse 25. He says, now, consider, or, now concerning virgins, and this refers to both men and women, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. In other words, the Lord did not specifically address some of these things in his earthly ministry. But Paul's apostolic opinion is inspired That's the idea inspired by the Holy Spirit is therefore trustworthy. In other words, it's able to be relied upon. It's fully authoritative. Verse 26. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress. That it is good for a man to remain as he is. In other words, he's saying you single Christians, you should remain single. Assuming you have the gift of of celibacy as he addressed in verse 7. And he says, verse 27, are you bound to a wife? In other words, are you married? He says, do not seek to be released. Marriage is a lifelong commitment. Don't seek a divorce unless there's biblical grounds and so forth. Or he says, are you released from a wife? In other words, are you unmarried? He says, do not seek a wife. So he's kind of leaving it open here. What you, whatever you want to do. And then he says in verse 28, but if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. Now, we're going to see some of you are already giggling because you know that there's trouble when you get married, right? Well, we'll get to that a little bit, but there's going to be three concerns that Paul mentions that we've got to take into consideration, and especially those that are considering marriage Concerns that, frankly, should extend to all of us and govern everything that we determine in our life. The first concern is is one that I just read here in verse 26. He says, in view of this present distress. Now, we're not sure what that was, but we are sure that they were sure what it was. But... We do know from the word distress, a term in the original language that carries the idea of, of a situation of great need that has been brought about by some calamity. We know that whatever the distress was, it was serious. And because of where this word is used elsewhere, I think we can get a pretty good picture of what was going on, especially if we look at the historical context. You will recall the word distress is one that Jesus used in his prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem. In Luke 21, verse 23, he says, Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. Likewise, Paul used the term describing his own ministry. In 2 Corinthians six and verse four, he says, "In everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance and afflictions, in hardships, and, here it is, distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, and labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger." And in chapter 12, verse 10, he says, "Therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses." with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So therefore, it is reasonable to assume that what Paul is describing here when he says this present distress is a reference to some kind of severe and probably mounting persecution upon the believers. Now, we know Paul has already experienced a lot of this from the Gentiles and especially from the Jews. But we must also realize that this letter was written in A.D. 55. And that's important because this was one year after a 17-year-old boy by the name of Nero became the most depraved, satanic rulers in all of history. In fact, within 10 years of the writing of this letter, he began his ruthless and his barbaric attack on Christians. We know that he would entertain his guests by crucifying Christians in trees in, the, in his garden. He would dress Christians in, in stiff wax shirts and then tie them to axle trees and set them on fire to light his nightly walks. He would have Christians sewn into large animal hides and only allow their hands and their head and their feet to be exposed so that they could scuttle about on all fours like a crab while ravenous dogs were turned loose to gnaw on them. And it is said that Nero would laugh heartily as he watched this hideous torture. Beloved, never underestimate the hatred of Satan for Christ and for those who belong to him. And never, ever underestimate the power of Satan and his minions to influence evil men to do things that we cannot imagine. In fact, one of Paul's Corinthian converts, a man by the name of Erastus, who was also the public treasurer of Corinth, as we read in Romans 16, verse 23, was one of the first martyrs to die at the hands of Nero's barbaric cruelties. So no wonder Paul is telling single believers here in verse 26. I think that it is good in view of the of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. I mean, folks, imagine the additional stress living in that day. If you had a spouse, if you had children. Can you imagine seeing your 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 loved one, your wife or your husband or your child being tortured Because of their faith. Can you imagine what it would be like to think that you were about to die. And leave your wife and children all alone and so forth. So not only must they be concerned about this present distress. But secondly in verse 29 he says. But this I say brethren the time has been shortened. Now this is interesting the term time in the original language kairos. It's one that speaks of a definite fixed period of time. And what we're seeing here is that this specific period of time has been condensed, it's been shortened, probably in light of the of the of the persecution, it's been compressed. And certainly none of us are going to live very long. Life is short. James says that it is a a vapor that appears for a little while and then it vanishes away. And how much more in times of persecution, mounting persecution? Time is short. Life as we know it, dear friends, is only a footnote in eternity when you think about it. So the point here, don't live for that which is short-lived. And then thirdly, a final concern is in verse 31. He says the form of this world is passing away. Form, schema in Greek. It means shape or appearance. In other words, all that is in the world, all that we can see, it's all passing away. This needs to influence your thoughts, dear ones, as you consider marriage. You see, all that we know, dear friends, all that we see, all of the nations of the world, all of the oceans, the mountains, all of creation, all of the stars in heaven, it's all passing away. It's all temporal. Think about it your loved ones, your parents, your spouse, your children. All your possessions, your own body, it's all passing away. So we need to have the proper perspective of life and eternity. It's for this reason Paul said in Second Corinthians four eighteen, look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And practically speaking, in 1 John 2, verse 15, John says, Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Then he went on to say the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So in summary, when considering singleness and marriage, one must have the proper perspective of life in light of eternity. He must consider this present distress, you know, what's going on in the world in terms of persecution towards believers. It's not real bad here in the United States. I believe it's coming, but it is real bad in other parts of the world. We need to consider the brevity of life. We need to also consider the temporal, transient nature of this world. It's all passing away. Christ is going to destroy this world. He's going to create all things new. You know, really, it's as though Paul's answers concerning singleness in marriage are kind of not the real point. They're almost secondary issues. I mean, can't you hear him, you know, verse 25, now concerning virgins, I think that is good in view of this present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. If you're bound to a wife, do not seek to be released or you're released from a wife. Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she is not sinned. It's almost like common sense here. Yet, he says, such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. Now, folks, marriage is a wonderful thing. I can attest to that, and I'm sure my dear wife will attest to that. It's a special measure of God's grace, but it's also filled with trouble, right? Especially in times of mounting persecution, but just think about it. Even when times are good, you've got two sinners coming together, right? So suddenly there's double trouble. There's lots of adjustments. Men and women are wired very differently. By the way, I'm still learning about that. Let me digress for a moment. Folks, you must remember just the the, the catastrophic implications of sin in the garden. I mean, this can't be overstated. In Romans five, verse twelve and following, we learn that that in Adam all died. In other words, the principle of sin became operative in all of creation, and God's curse on men and on women strikes primarily at the most fundamental level, at their maleness and at their femaleness. Males are to, were made to be initiators; females to be responders. But biblically, we discover that that our rebellion will divide, or not divide, will violate the divine order of headship and submission. All of this is going to get mixed up. The roles of both men and women in their relationship as husband and wife are are now going to experience a devastating reversal. You remember, God said to Eve, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you, Genesis 3. Verse 16, desire means control or to dominate. No longer would she naturally submit to the leadership of her husband. It's not going to be natural. And we see this in Eve's failure to consult with Adam, you will recall, when he, tempted by the serpent and she acted independently of her husband. And now she's going to seek to dominate him in unique ways. Also, Adam mindlessly followed his wife into sin, at abandoning his role as a leader. And now God tells us, he shall rule over you. That's not always going to be a tender, loving, sacrificial rule. It's not always going to be selfless in his consideration of his wife's well-being spiritually and physically, especially among unbelievers. At times it's going to be harsh, it's going to be overbearing, it's going to be selfish and the curse on women impacts her domain of, 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 of influence and fulfillment, primarily in the realm of her husband and her children. Frustration, heartache, abuse, struggling with either a weak, weak husband or an overbearing husband. Relentless pressure for her, raising kids, dealing with sin and so forth. And the curse on men impacts likewise the domain of his influence, the domain of his fulfillment, namely his workplace. Men were destined because of the curse to experience extreme diversity as he labors to provide. There's going to be constant frustration dealing with with rebellion, even in his own family, even at times with his wife. And men can tend to become either an overbearing person as a leader or just completely wimp out. You have like a continuum here. Men can become fugitives from their own life, pursuing the lusts and their hobbies and everything they can to somehow escape the the, the feelings of of, uh, failure and so forth. The point is, dear friends, the, the, the wellspring of marriage has been divinely poisoned by the curse. And as a result, you have on the one hand feminism, and on the other hand, you have chauvinism. This would now become the natural response of the heart. Frankly, the battle of the sexes began in the garden. And typically, because of the male superior strength, chauvinism has dominated throughout, throughout history. However, of late, we see the pendulum swinging back to another extreme that is equally wicked, an equally wicked perversion, and that is of feminism where women try to suppress men. So with men, you have this continuum. They'll either be tyrants or wimps. And with women, they will either be emasculating shrews or just kind of helpless airheads. So indeed, when he says in verse 28, if a virgin Mary, she's not sinned, yet such will have trouble in this life. And I'm trying to spare you. Now, all I've done is just given you a little sample of the background of how the, the curse has uniquely affected us as men and as women. And then we come together and all of these things begin to get stirred up. So we've got to have the proper perspective of life in light of eternity. Again, by summary, life is dangerous, life is short, and this world is passing away. So don't make matters worse of singleness and marriage becoming your preoccupation. Think about these things as you make these decisions. Live in light of eternity. Make the most of your time. Take every opportunity to serve Christ. That's going to be the theme that he continues To reiterate, in Ephesians 5 and verse 15, we read, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. Why? Because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Well, what's the will of the Lord? Well, we could speak on that for hours, couldn't we? He says, I want you to be holy as I am holy. I want you to let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. I want you to be continually filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit. I want you to present your bodies as a living and a holy sacrifice that is acceptable to God. I want you to go and make disciples. I want you to baptize them. I want you to teach them all that the Lord has commanded them. I want you to pray without ceasing. I want you to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I want you to put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand firm against the schemes of the devil. I want you to be at peace with one another. I want you to love one another, serve one another, encourage one another, and on and on it goes. I want you to know what the will of the Lord is. That's the priority given your life in light of eternity. These are to be the preoccupations of our heart. In Colossians 3 and verse 2, Paul puts it this way, set your mind on the things above not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry and so forth. So Paul then, as we think about it, he moves from, the the, the proper perspective here that we need to have of life in light of eternity. And he also shows, secondly, the practical priorities of life in light of eternity. When We have the proper eternal perspective. perspective, He's going to essentially say, and and bear with me because I'll need to explain this, that Christians should live as if they have no wives. They should live as if they have no mourning, as if they have no happiness, as if they have no permanent possessions and no engrossments. And this is fascinating, the argument that he gives here and the instructive illustrations. And I'm going to break it down into four categories. We have to have priorities in terms of relationships, emotions, possessions and affections. Just real briefly, first of all, in terms of our relationships And he uses the example of wives that extends to all family relationships. Verse 29, he says, the time has been shortened so that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Now, obviously, he's not contradicting all of the important teachings regarding, you know, loving your spouse and your family. But what he's doing here is stressing the matter of practical priority in relationship in light of eternity. He's saying marriage and family must never be a priority that restricts your obligation to serve the Lord. In other words, don't allow your devotion to your spouse and by extension, your family to eclipse your devotion to the Lord. If I can put it a little bit differently, don't deify your marriage. Don't deify your family. And I fear that many times this happens. Beloved, I hope you hear this right, but remember, your spouse and your family's passing away. Yes, marriage lasts for our short life, but only for our life. You realize there's no marriage in heaven, Matthew twenty-two thirty. 30. Some of you might say, hallelujah. <laughs> and others are going to say, oh, that seems so sad. Folks, all I got to tell you is that as magnificent as marriage is on earth, it's going to be infinitely better, even though we're all going to be single in heaven. Somehow it's going to be infinitely better. So don't worry about it, all right? But there will be no need for companionship or procreation, two of the main reasons why why God gave us marriage. So there's not going to be any marriage. And Paul's point is simply this. Because... Life in Christ is dangerous because life is short, because this world is passing away. Even if you are married, you need to live for Christ as if you're not married. In other words, don't let your devotion to your spouse and to your family overshadow your devotion to the Lord. And unfortunately, many times this happens. Misplaced priorities with respect to marriage and family. Far too often, folks... Are more devoted to their family than they are to the Lord's work. Family comes first, and the Lord is kind of a the Lord's work and serving Him is just kind of a distant second. And folks, all you have to do is look at your checkbook and your calendar to determine this. Parents will sacrifice virtually everything so that their kid can kick, catch, hit, shoot a ball, or beat a drum, or play an instrument. And they will spend thousands of dollars driving all over the country for athletics or some other child-centered event. But they don't have time to get them to Sunday school. No, no, we're pretty tired. I mean, we've been, you know, to Georgia last night for the game or whatever. Really have no interest to in be a part of student ministries. we got all these other things that we're doing. Don't have time to participate in a Wi-Fi group because weekly intentional fellowship interaction is just not as important as the music lessons for my kids. You see how that works? Don't have money to spend on camp because we have spent our money on countless things that are a part of this world that is passing away. Amazing. People will raise thousands of dollars to send their kids overseas on a mission trip to be salt and light to people they don't know. And yet they will show absolutely no interest in being salt and light to people in their own church and in their own community. There's Something wrong. Folks, I, I, I humbly challenge you as I've had to challenge myself. You know, look at your schedule. <laughs> look, look, look at your checkbook. Where do you invest your money? You know, 98% of all you do and all you spend, typically, is going to be on your family. The pursuit of the things of the Lord are just not there. Instead, we pursue things and spend our money on things of no eternal value. And I would just ask you, in light of all this, how much time and money do you devote to the Lord's work here at Calvary Bible Church? What area of ministry do you own? What are those non-negotiables in your family, those non-negotiable priorities when it comes to serving Christ? I think Jesus summarizes so well in Luke 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It carries the idea of having a lesser love than love for Christ. A devotion to him that is so strong that everything else in comparison seems like hatred. Beloved, Paul's concern here is don't be earthbound. Live your life in light of eternity. Make decisions in light of that. And think how the cause of Christ has been diminished because... Family comes before the Lord's work. Think of how many families are deprived of worship and instruction on the Lord's day because they are simply exhausted from being involved in so many other things that have absolutely no eternal value. Husbands, wives, parents, what are the priorities in your life that your kids are learning from you? Do they see you living in light of eternity? That's the point. The second practical priority that should be a concern is that of emotions, sorrow and joy. Notice in verse 30, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. In other words, the sorrows and joys of this life are merely transient and, and imaginary when compared to the sorrows of those who are going to perish in their sins and the joys of those who will enter one day into paradise. Again, let me keep summarizing it. Life is dangerous when you live for Christ. Life is short and the world is passing away. This world is like a Hollywood set. I remember when we lived in California, it was almost like overnight you would be driving along the highway and all of a sudden there's this, there's this western town or, or Victorian town that was built and it's all just a facade. And in a way, that's what this world is. So the point here is, is let's don't mourn over or even celebrate things that are just part of a set that's falling apart. Let's mourn over the right things. Let's celebrate the right thing. You know, people weep over broken relationships and and justly so. But we must make sure that we're weeping over the proper things. Let's let's don't mourn over things that are passing away. The great Puritan Matthew Henry said this. We must not be dejected too much with any of our afflictions. Nor indulge ourselves in the sorrow of the world, but keep up a holy joy in God in the midst of all our troubles. So that even in sorrow, the heart may be joyful and the end of our grief may be gladness. Then he says, weeping may endure for a night, but joy will come in the morning. And likewise, Paul says, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, in other words, make sure you find your happiness in the proper things. Let's don't le- merely rejoice over things that are temporal. Yes, let's celebrate. Let's rejoice in all of the good things that God has given us, like marriage and even the gift of singleness for those that have that and every other blessing of life. But let's hold on to those joys lightly. Don't allow the things that, find, that we find pleasure in in this world to be the greatest source of our satisfaction, And the greatest source of solace in our life. Look beyond them. Constantly look beyond them. Look into glory. Look into heaven. And the eternal joy of living one day in the presence of the lover of our soul. Keep that eternal perspective. Let's control our emotions by viewing everything, whether it's bad or good in life, in the lens or through the lens of eternity. If it brings sorrow, live beyond it. If it brings joy, let it point you to heaven where the real joy is going to be. He gives a third practical priority in the realm of possessions, verse 30. And those who buy is those who did not possess. We all know that the pursuit and the accumulation of of material possessions can be a great distraction when it comes to living life in light of eternity. We can unwittingly lay up our treasures here on earth rather than in heaven. And then little by little, we become preoccupied with the externals of life and we ignore the internal realities of our heart and we find ourselves attached to things that are passing away. Don't cling to the things of this world, he's telling them. He's telling us. They're disappearing. You're not going to take them with you. The fourth practical priority is in the realm of affections. Verse 31. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. I confess, I don't fully understand what he's saying here, but I'll give you my best shot after hours of study. Okay? The word use participle, chromonoi is in contrast to when he says those who use the world as those that did not make full use of it, Katai chromonoi, those who abuse it. There's using and there's abusing. And what he's saying here, I believe, is that, that, that we all need to use this world to survive, and rightfully so, but let's don't let the world start using us. Let's don't let the world make it our slave. Think of all the wonderful things that we can enjoy in life. One of my favorite things, apart from being with my dear wife and doing things with her, I always have to say that first. She knows that's true. But once you move from there, sorry, folks, it's not preaching. Give me a pack string of horses in the Rocky Mountains and an elk hunt. That's heaven on earth, right? And you've got your own thing, whatever it is, right? But the point is... We've got to be careful that we don't make those wonderful things that God gives us idols of our heart that distract us from worshiping and serving God and abusing the things of this world. Because then the world begins to take the affections of our heart. And again, in verse 31, he says, For the form of this world is passing away. So, after giving us four practical priorities of life, these categories, Concerning relationships, emotions, possessions, and affections. We, we move to the preeminent preoccupation. What is the most important preoccupation we should have of life in light of eternity? And this is not only, again, it's not only for those that he's speaking to who are wondering about getting married. It extends to every believer in every area of life. Notice verse 32. But I want you to be free from concern. And we already have a sense of why he would say that. He goes on, he says, one who is married is concerned about the things of the Lord. The one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. I mean, he's just stating a fact here. We all know this. Obviously, single people have far fewer concerns than married people, especially married people with families. Just for the fun of it, I wanted to see what the average cost of raising a child of age 18 is in the United States, and it's $234,000. So you can kind of do the math, depending upon how many kids you have. And in first century Corinth, parents had the same kinds of needs as we do, but As Christians, they had the added burden of persecution, the concern about that. We know that in that day, the saints in Corinth lost 25% of their babies in the first year. It's a high infant mortality rate. Moreover, half of all children would die before the age of 10. So they had a lot of concerns and it's for this reason to this very day being able to bear children is considered to be more of a curse than a blessing in many especially third world countries. And even in first world countries large families have a much higher rate of impoverishment especially if they are single parent families and to be sure all of us as spouses and as parents. Know the never-ending concerns that we have for our our family, for our spouse, for our children. Singles don't have to worry about those things, right? You know, if you've got four kids, you just don't go to a restaurant very much, right? You just don't do that. Some of you have more than that, and you really know you're smiling. It's like, yeah, I have to take out a loan to go to McDonald's, you know? And by the way, I can tell you from, from three kids, you are going to pay most of your life on braces, right? You're constantly looking out for them. I get on a plane and get ready to go overseas. I cannot wait for the plane to hit the ground so I can call Nancy and find out how everything's going, you know? And it's that way the whole time I'm gone. And then there's the inevitable heartbreak that comes from parenting. You did What? We all know what that's like. Sweetheart, you actually think that looks good? You, you like that nut job? <laughs> I mean, they have the same stuff to deal with that we have to deal with. Of course, some of you are saying, oh, no, not my kids. <laughs> no, I, I won't allow it. Yeah, Right. You know, I've noticed that every parent is an expert on child rearing until their kids get old enough to embarrass them. Right. And then you don't hear much anymore. The point is, folks, it, it, it's tough. It's tough. Paul knows this. He's not saying don't get married, and don't have kids. He's just saying you need to look at life in light of eternity. And here are the categories. Back to verse 32. So it's hard for us to be concerned about the things of the Lord, how we may please the Lord. Yet that needs to be the priority of our life. Again, verse 32, but I want you to be free from concern. He goes on then in verse 34 at the end, he says, the woman who is unmarried, by the way, here the term refers to divorced. The the woman who is unmarried and the virgin, in other words, one who is single by divorce, is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint literally carries the idea of putting a a rope around or a harness around or a a legalistic noose. I'm not trying to put a legalistic noose upon you, but and this is so important to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Folks, this must be the preeminent preoccupation of life in light of eternity. What he says right here. To promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. I didn't give this to the folks to put on the screen, but in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, Paul said that I, I'm afraid lest as the serpent deceived Eve and... The garden through his craftiness that your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. You see, that has to be the preeminent preoccupation. Look, folks, your family, your job, all these things that you spend so much of your time and your money, all that's passing away. The only thing that matters is what you do for Christ. You want to ask yourself, does... Does my life really manifest this? Is it characteristic of my life that I'm a person that has an appropriate and undistracted devotion to the Lord? Does this play out in my decision making as I think about getting married or whatever I think about doing? Am I living my life in light of eternity? That's the point. folks, frankly, we must be preoccupied with eternity. Why? Because life is dangerous. Because life is short. Because this world is passing away. You know, it's really precious as you read kind of between the lines as Paul answers the questions of these saints. You know, you can tell that these folks, and they had all kinds of problems like we all do, right? But they really wanted to know and they really wanted to serve christ and and we see this in this closing section. Let me give you a little background before we finish this up. Marriages were typically arranged in those days, especially among the Jews and mainly the fathers arranged the marriage and evidently what happened is 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 Some of these dads, after coming to faith in Christ, thought it would be honoring to the Lord to dedicate their daughters to the Lord as permanent virgins. That was what was going on. I I love my daughter so much. I love the Lord so much. Lord, what I'm going to do is dedicate my little girl so that she will be a permanent virgin. She will never, ever get married. That's my vow to you. But as you might expect, some of those little girls grew up and realized they did not have the gift of celibacy and they wanted to get married. All right, You know where this is going, don't you? So there's conflict. And so the dads are saying, ah, Apostle Paul, we need help here. You know, we made this vow. Uh, Mary Beth doesn't like this at all. And so just wondering, can we change our mind? Is that going to be dishonoring to the Lord? That's what's happening here. And, of course, the answer is yes. Verse 36, but if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she's past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes, and he does not sin, let her marry. Let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, in other words, if you're one that you're a dad, you just decide you're not going to change, your mind, and then it says, "Being under no constraint." In other words, the daughter is agreeing with you, as many of them would. But has authority over his own will. In other words, his motives are pure, and and, and he's decided in his own heart. In other words, this is a heartfelt commitment before the Lord. He's decided that he wants to keep his own virgin daughter. Then he he, he will do well. You can do that too. Verse 38, so then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. It's not a difference between right and wrong. It's between good and gooder, as we would say, right? Then he closes with a reminder of the permanency of marriage. He says, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. Only in the Lord, young people remember this, you're going to get married someday, make sure they're a believer. Let me add something to that. Let other people who are much wiser and more discerning than you make sure they're a believer. Let them vet them. Okay. And then verse 40. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. And then he says, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. A little touch of sarcasm there. Bear in mind, you've got two sides here in the church. You've got one side saying, ah, you know, I'm arguing for celibacy. No, well, I'm arguing for marriage. Remember, we went through all of that with the with the Gentiles and the and the Jews. And yeah, and, and, and I've got the Spirit of God on my side. You know, and so you've got these two groups. And well, Paul says, well, here's what I've told you. And I think I've got the Spirit of God too, you know. And, of course, what the Apostle says trumps everything else, and that's what we have. Well, beloved, especially you singles, I challenge you to examine your own heart. Do you have the proper perspective of life in light of eternity? Threefold, living for Christ is dangerous in this world. Life is short, and also this world is passing away. Do these factors influence your decisions? That's the point. And practically speaking, you need to make it your priority to view your relationships, your emotions, your possessions, and your affections in light of eternity. That's what Paul is saying. Do you do this? Is, can this be said of you? And then finally, is your preeminent preoccupation in life in light of eternity to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistraction undistracted devotion to the Lord. Oh, I pray that it is. I pray that this is the passion of your heart. And again, your checkbook and your calendar, and I might add, those who know you best will help you determine the truth regarding these things. All right, we got through it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word that... It's just so amazing, especially when we think of the saints so long ago. And, and even though some of the things they were dealing with are a little bit different than, than our culture and all today, but still, at a very core level, we all struggle with the same types of dynamics living in this fallen world. Thank you for your word that, that truly is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Use it, even today to instruct us as we endeavor to live a life that is appropriate, that is undistracted in our devotion to the Lord. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.